Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 4 this morning. Daniel chapter 4. By way of reminder, Daniel was a Jew, an Israelite who had been taken captive when then General Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah and took Jerusalem, deporting upwards of 20,000 of the nobility of Israel uh, to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar, died shortly thereafter, and that put Nebuchadnezzar then on the throne. And now as king, he straightway began a process of integrating uh, the Jewish captives into the Babylonian culture and into service of the realm. Now as we think about God's people, Israel, being taken captive by a pagan nation and being forced to live and serve in that pagan culture, I want us to not forget that it was Yahweh's judgment on his people. Judgment because of their continued idolatry and disregard of his commands that caused this to happen. And I want us to just keep in mind that it was God's will for a time that his people live under the totalitarian rule of Babylon, serving the nation, serving its king, and making their home there in the land. Despite their forced servitude, Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, proposed that they would not disregard Yahweh's commands while they lived and served in this pagan environment. And we found as we've looked through the story that both their commitment to Yahweh and his deliverance of them when their commitment to him put them at odds with the pagan culture and also with the king, that it is through all of this that a process began that demonstrated right in the very heart of paganism that Yahweh was the one true sovereign God and as such, he was and is superior to the false gods of Babylon. And all of that made a, a particular impact, a positive impact on Nebuchadnezzar. It began when he saw how Daniel and his friends were superior in their Babylonian re-education despite their request to remain on a simple kosher diet rather than consuming the king's meat and drink. Immediately on the heels of that, Yahweh gave Nebuchadnezzar a troubling dream about a statue that none of his wise men advisors could recount or interpret. And then God used Daniel to be able to tell the dream to the king as well as to interpret it. And that caused Nebuchadnezzar to promote Daniel and his friends to high governmental office and at that time to publicly praise their God saying he is the revealer of mysteries. About 10 to 20 years later, Nebuchadnezzar built a golden statue that was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, demanding that all of the peoples bow down and worship it or face death by cremation in a fiery furnace. 
We studied how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's Daniel's friends, uh, their Babylonian names, how they refused to bow down and were thrown into a fire. But we discovered how God delivered them, and this led Nebuchadnezzar to declare Yahweh to be the most high God and to actually, in writing, forbid anyone from speaking ill against him. Now, what we see in each one of these accounts is the direct work of God in the life of a pagan king. God revealing himself to this king and drawing him eventually to a place of repentant faith. And as we come to Daniel chapter 4, we find that it brings all of that together for us and ties it off in a neat bow. And we're going to see how all of that uh, transpired as we go through chapter 4 today. Now, as we go through chapter 4, I just want you to be aware that the events that we will read of took place approximately over a period of 20 years following the fiery furnace incident. So none of these situations fall you know, right on top of each other. There's quite a bit of time between each one. Also, I want you to be aware this morning that what we are going to encounter here in chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony of God's dealings with him that ultimately transformed his life. And he put his testimony in writing. And so we have that here today. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 4. And here we're going to first just hear his opening comments as he begins to share his testimony. His letter or pronouncement begins, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show or to make known the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I don't know about you, but that coming out of the mouth of a pagan king tells me that there's been a major shift in his worldview. Wouldn't you agree? I think that's a fact. We can see that his heart has changed and his way of thinking has definitely changed. So, with those opening comments, now he begins to tell the story. This is what has happened over these last many years. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. Now I want to stop there for just a moment to consider the insanity, the insanity of doing the same thing over and over and over again despite the fact that it does not yield the desired results. Any of you ever done that? You keep doing the same old thing, expecting something new and different, but you keep getting the same old bad taste? That's insane. 
I do it, you do it, it's insane. And yet we see Nebuchadnezzar doing that here. And so we shake our heads in disbelief at Nebuchadnezzar who kept going back to his pagan wise men advisors. He kept going back to them for answers and they never could provide the answers he was seeking. And right in his court was a man that he knew was attached to whom he called the Most High God, who every time he went to him was able to deliver because the God he served was a living God who was in control of all things. Eh, he, kept, he just kept doing the same old thing. And so uh, we shake our heads at that. But I ask, you know, don't we do the same thing? Don't we do the same thing? The list is too long to name all of the alternatives that we chase after to find comfort or answers or deliverance or peace instead of running to the source of all of those things, Jesus the Christ. So I ask the question of us in general, I ask the question of myself specifically, when will we learn? When will we learn that Jesus is the source of all that we need not the multiplicity of lesser things that we typically turn to. Verse 8. At last, <laughs> it's kind of like us, at last I went to prayer to the Lord. At last Daniel came before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom the spirit of the Holy, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Now, as we see how he's talking here, I just want to make sure you keep in mind that as he's talking about the name of his idol God, and as he talks about the potential of the multiplicity of gods who may be indwelling Daniel, he's speaking from his former perspective. He's talking about how he saw things back in the day. He's not saying how he sees things now because he's telling this story. And so verse 10 brings us to the actual dream. He tells Daniel, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Now, this, again, this is what he's seeing in his dream. But now we come to a point where there's going to be a major shift from this dream being very positive to turning very negative. Verse 13. He says, A watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid tender, the tender grass of the field. Now, let him, that's important, be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion 
be with the beasts of the grass of the earth and let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time or seven years of time pass over him. It is right there as this watcher or this holy one is making these declarations that we come to understand that the tree of Nebuchadnezzar's dream was not a tree at all. It's a symbol, a symbol of a man. And specifically, it is a symbol of Nebuchadnezzar himself. As we come to verse 17, we find the purpose of it all. Why all of this is going to happen. This watcher, this holy one, says that the sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, here's the purpose, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Well, there's a lot there to unpack. Unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack it all. Today is not the day to do it. But perhaps sometime in the future, I'll maybe dedicate a midweek connection to this topic. Who are the watchers? Who in the world is he talking about? Who are the watchers? Who are these holy ones that are referred to here? Let me give you just a little clue, and it's just a little clue. It may cause more questions than it brings answers, but that's okay. Psalm 82 you ought to mark that down and read it later on. Psalm 82 speaks of a divine counsel. I would love to just kind of jump into that and keep going, but that's not what we're here for today. So, um, but I believe that there is a connection between this divine counsel that we see mentioned in Psalm 82 and the identity of these watchers or these holy ones, but that's a topic for another time. So Nebuchadnezzar has now shared his dream, and he has shared the message that he received from this watcher or this holy one. And so in verse 18, he brings a conclusion. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, and he knew that because he'd already seen it, more than once, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, I believe it's obvious here that this pagan king over the years has grown to respect Daniel. And as I think about that, I find it quite ironic. Because Daniel was a conquered Jew. He was a prisoner of war. And he was someone who was forced to live in a foreign land whose people did not acknowledge the one that he knew to be the true and living God. And Daniel was a person who was forced to serve a king who at times perhaps thought of himself as a god, a king who was known to be very brutal, very self-centered, and a blasphemer. Yet despite all of that, this, this man, for, who for the most part, other than his friends, stands alone in his faith and worship of Yahweh, 
is being used to make a difference in the heart of the one who sets at the center of the paganism that is Babylon. And I find that truly astounding that God strategically, God strategically placed one of his own in the midst of paganism to bring glory to himself. That right there, church, is an excessively important reality. Let me explain. Over the years, I've heard many Christians bemoan the fact that they are forced to work or to be educated or to live in a place where they feel they stand alone for God. No one else around me is a Christian. I'm the only one. And they speak of all of the negative things they encounter day after day after day. All of the stories of the drunken parties and the cocaine fest and the, you know, picking up the girls at the bar and just all kinds of junk they hear at work and it's just so terrible. And I alone stand for God. And so they begin to say and speak aloud to other people uh, how they long to quit and they want to find a more righteous employer, a more righteous school, a more righteous neighborhood. In other words, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for a place where the Christians outnumber the pagans. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I want because I'm miserable in the condition I'm in right now. And I have to ask this question. Is that why God left us here after he saved us? Did he leave us here to cocoon, to cocoon ourselves in the sweet embrace of fellow believers? The key word there is cocoon. To be certain, that's what the fellowship of the church is all about. The church is all about the sweet fellowship of encouragement and instruction and accountability of the body of Christ. But is that supposed to be our 24-7 environment? Or is it simply intended by God to be a place of respite and spiritual refueling before we launch back into the heart of paganism for the glory and the purposes of Christ? Truth point number one answers that question. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Christians have been recreated in Christ Jesus and given the ministry of reconciliation to be his ambassadors to a pagan world, proclaiming the gospel, guiding them toward reconciliation with God. Go read the passage, you'll find that I just paraphrased it, right? But that's what it teaches. Now, if that's what it's all about for us as individual believers, how in the world are we going to accomplish that if we are always surrounding ourselves with the sweet comfort of fellow believers? How can that be? It can't be. 
And so I think we need to examine ourselves. And we need to examine our attitudes. Are we like Daniel, faithfully representing our Lord in everyday life? Or are we like ourselves, sometimes bemoaning all of the paganism that's around us? As we move to verses 19 through 30, and before we launch into the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, I want us to see a little bit more of the bond that had been formed between this pagan king and his servant who was sold out to Yahweh his God. Verse 19 says, Then Daniel was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. What does that mean? It simply means that as he stood there receiving the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had, and as the Holy Spirit was beginning to open up his mind and showing him what he needed to tell Nebuchadnezzar, he knew this is going to be a tough deal. I'm going to have to say some things that are going to be very hard. And besides all of that, I don't want to see this happen to him. The king noticed that he was hesitant and perhaps afraid because when you stand in front of a volatile, pagan, totalitarian ruler, Anything can happen. And so the king said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. In other words, I want you to give it to me straight. I want you to tell me what your God is revealing to you. And notice how he responds here. Belshazzar, or Daniel, answered, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. You know, given the circumstances that Daniel was in, one might expect Daniel to be joyful. Coming to understand that this pagan was about to face a severe judgment from God. I think many of us would be in that position. It's about time. But actually, we see that it grieved his heart which demonstrates that Daniel did not see Nebuchadnezzar as his enemy, but as one who needed to turn from his idolatry to embrace the Most High God fully. Well, Daniel doesn't hold back. He gives him the straight story, and here's the interpretation. Verse 20. He says, The tree you saw, it is you, O king, your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, and now we go back through that message again, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. Because you encountered all of that, this then is the interpretation. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. 
You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time, or seven years, shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. It's a pretty serious message, isn't it? You know, I've often wondered as I've read this portion of Daniel how it was that Nebuchadnezzar was not overthrown while he was in his seven years of madness. I mean, there's always somebody in the royal court who's looking to overthrow the king and put themselves on the throne. And if that's not the case, there's always a foreign power that's looking to expand their power and wanting to overthrow uh, the the leader of, of the nation they're wanting to take hold of. The answer to that question, though, is found in the symbolism of the stump bound with a band of iron and bronze. Basically what that represented was God putting a supernatural hedge of protection around Nebuchadnezzar to ensure that that would not happen, that someone would not rise up from the inside and easily take over his throne or some invading power would come in. God was going to supernaturally protect him because he had a purpose for which all of this was happening. And so, Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar good counsel. Verse 27, because of all of this, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may, be, may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Uh, Daniel is not saying <clears throat> you can get right with God by your good works. The good works were meant to be the testimony of a changed heart. What Daniel is telling him is you need to repent, you need to change. And of course that change is going to result in a whole different way of living. But despite the respect that Nebuchadnezzar had for Daniel, Daniel's counsel fell then on deaf ears. And we find that while he was appreciative of the interpretation and perhaps was troubled by it, perhaps he mused on it a while, perhaps he dreamed on it some more, perhaps he even discussed it more with Daniel, we don't know. What we do know is that he didn't change. And God was patient. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a year 12 full months to come to grips with what had been given to him. And we find that there was no action, no repentant action from Nebuchadnezzar. If anything, his pride and self-worship only increased. And so verse 28, all of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, all these things that were told eventually hit him. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power 
as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? No repentance there. No change of heart. He's just continuing right on in the same line he had been living in his entire life. Truth point number two is all about this issue of inaction. I want us to take this one in. One does not have to intentionally act to reject God's call to repentance. You don't have to do that. You don't have to say, I won't do it. I am not going to do that. You don't have to act. Inaction to repent is action to reject God's mercy and grace, maintaining a position in opposite in opposition to God. And I share that with you because it was true of Nebuchadnezzar. His inaction to do what Daniel said he needed to do was actually action he was taking against God. He was saying by his inaction, I'm not going to capitulate to what you have said to me. And what I want to say to you and to myself is this, is that all of us from time to time find ourselves being convicted of some sin that's going on in our lives. And sometimes we fall before the Lord and we uh, confess and we repent and we seek to move on in a new direction. But sometimes we're convicted and we do nothing. We don't do anything. We sit in our communion service that happens once a month and we are told by the pastors and the elders that we need to examine our lives and we need to see if there's anything between us and God. And sometimes there is. And sometimes the Lord reveals that to us and we're sitting there holding the cup and the bread and we know I need to acknowledge this. I need to say, yes, God, you are right and I am wrong. And Lord, I need to say I'm sorry and I need to move in a new direction but sometimes we don't do that do we we just sit there and we hold it and we try not to think about the conviction that has just hit us and what I want us all to recognize is that that right there is action it is action saying I am not going to do what you've said for me to do and the thing that I want to make sure that we grasp at this point in time is that there is no such thing as spiritual fence riding. Jesus made it clear in Luke eleven twenty three, whoever is not with me is against me. We're all on one side of the fence or the other. And if you don't like that, well, you don't like it but it doesn't change the reality of what is true. We're always on one side of the fence or the other. And that's why it's important that we take regular opportunities to take a good hard look at ourselves with the Holy Spirit's enablement to ensure that if we're on the wrong side of the fence, we're making that right and we're getting with the Lord and we're aligning ourselves with him, amen? Oh, you don't believe it. I know you don't, so I'll say amen. And I hope you believe it. Well, we move on, verses 31 through 33. The humiliation. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. 
O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. There always comes a time of reckoning. I wonder, have you ever been humiliated? Specifically, have you ever been humbled by God? It was 1988. I've told this story before, so those of you who've heard it, just sit patient. There's a whole bunch of new folks who haven't heard it. It was 1988, and Connie and my oldest son, David, and I were part of a large Southern Baptist church in Columbus, Mississippi. And we had been recruited to be part of a music drama presentation. I was a regular member of the choir, so in addition to singing in the choir, Connie, David, and I had an acting part in the program. And I got to say, it's one thing to sing with 250 other people, and it's another to stand on a stage and have to act out a part, right? So I was very nervous, and I wanted to do a good job for the Lord. I really did. I, and so the week leading up to it, I really spent time fervently praying and asking God to give me the ability to do my part well for his glory. Well, the first night, we took the stage in front of about 1,500 people. And I got to say, we nailed it. I mean, we really did. Every line just, just, just flowed, right? And afterwards, the people were so complimentary. You did such a good job. And I'm like, oh, what an ego booster. Well, the next night... The crowd was equally large. And on this particular night, they were videotaping it because they had a weekly television ministry that went out across North Mississippi. And so there we were. And uh, riding high on the success of the previous night, I just offered a little prayer. You know, Lord, I need your help again. But then I kind of thought to myself, if they liked my performance last night, Wait till they get this one. So there we were in our place. The lights came up. The camera was focused in. I started my lines, and all of a sudden, my mind went totally blank. Totally blank. Connie was trying to prompt me. She was leaning forward and speaking the lines, but I couldn't hear her. I think that might have been divine judgment because I always hear her when she complains otherwise. <laughs> But she wasn't complaining. She was just trying to help me, and I couldn't hear a thing she was saying. And to add insult to injury, as I'm standing on the edge of the stage, and all that attention is on me, there was an orchestra pit right down here. And all I could hear, I couldn't hear her, but I could hear somebody in the orchestra pit laughing. And they said, he's forgot his lines. Wow. Well, I did my best to mumble out a couple of sentences. 
I have no idea what I said, and I left the stage in total humiliation. But for me, truly, it was more than an issue of humiliation. It was a lesson that God wanted me to learn. And perhaps it's a lesson that God may want some of you to learn, and that is this, that without him, I'm nothing. Without him, I am nothing. Whatever good comes from me, it's his power that does it. Whatever blessing takes place, it is the Spirit of God bringing the enablement. And I look back on that time, I'll never forget the pain. And I'll never forget the victory that the lesson brought as well. My humiliation lasted for a few minutes and then subsided after a few days. Nebuchadnezzar's lasted for seven days years. Truth point number three. James 4, 6 through 8. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Man, I, I, I could name names of people in my life who need to learn that lesson. The pride just seems to just drip off of them. I wish they could learn that God is opposing them. But he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Well, this is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn. And we find, as we continue, that by God's grace, he learned it. Look with me at verses 34 through 37. At the end of the days, seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. When you read that passage right there, what you are reading, you are reading what real repentance looks like. If you ever wonder what repentance is like, what does it look like? That's what it looks like. Repentance is not just saying I'm sorry, and it's not just agreeing with God. Repentance is a change of direction. Nebuchadnezzar had seen himself as a god, because when he spoke, his orders were carried out without question. But he discovered that he was nothing, that he had no power against Yahweh, nor did he have any position from which to question what he does. And what we find is that from this newfound position of repentance, it led then to expressions of worship and surrender. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, 
For all his works are right, including making me live like an animal for seven years. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Truth point number four. Worship without repentance is impossible. Now you can sing songs, <laughs> you can lift your hands, you can say God bless you and all the rest of that religious jargon. You can do all of that, but that's not necessarily worship. If there's sin in your life, you have to repent. And if you don't repent, you're just going through spiritual mumbo jumbo. Worship without repentance is impossible. To deny the need for or refuse to act in repentance is to elevate oneself to a position of self-worship. Why else would I not repent when the Spirit of God convicts me of something other than the fact that I think I know better? And that, my friend, is self-worship. Part two. This is just a fact. God or self can sit on the throne of your life, but there's only room for one. Allowing self to be enthroned is to practice idolatry and bind yourself to a lie. Freedom is found exclusively in the heart where God in Christ is enthroned. Let's wrap it up. There are lessons to be learned, both from Nebuchadnezzar and from Daniel, out of chapter 4. Let's take a look at one each. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar teaches us the imperative of discovering that the Most High rules. And the only place of peace and rest is in the position of submission to his rule as God over us. I don't know about you, but throughout my life I have found myself knowing what God wanted and struggling against him. Because I just didn't think there would be peace or rest doing what he wanted me to do. What I discovered was I wore myself to a frazzle fighting against someone who I can't win against. And then I discovered that when I finally said yes, that's when peace and rest all of a sudden showed up. So Christian, I ask you this morning, where are you in relation to this lesson? This issue of submitting to the Lord is not a one and done kind of a lesson. It's something we must relearn and re-engage daily. We need to realize we're never going to be perfect in this life, but if we can come to the place of a true heart acknowledgement, then we can grow in our surrender and thus our worship of Yahweh as the most high in our lives. Daniel teaches a lesson that I really, really, really want all of you to hear. Daniel teaches us that no matter where you live, who you work with, or what circumstances you're in, you can be a godly influence in the lives of those who do not know or acknowledge Jesus Christ as God. It's nice to be in the sweet embrace of fellow believers. And hopefully when that happens on a regular basis, we receive comfort and instruction and accountability and, and strength. But it's supposed to not be where we live. We're to live in the world. Not to be in it. Not, not, not to be of it. But to definitely be in it. 
no matter where. There's somebody sitting in this room right now who works in a place that most of you would have a cow if you knew about it. And you wouldn't want anything to do with it. But I got a feeling they're being a godly influence where they are. Daniel, you know who you are, whoever that person is. Daniel was one who prayed, who cared for, and shared with the lost. And we find that it paid off in a glorious conversion. I want to ask you this, church. Who is your Nebuchadnezzar? Who is your Nebuchadnezzar? In other words, who has God placed in your world to pray for, to care for, and to share the love of Christ with? Whoever that person is, will you engage with them? Will you engage with them? Or will you just move on? An unbelieving friend, whether you're in this room, whether you're out in the Mission Cafe, or whether you're online, I want you to know that there is a God in heaven and he rules. And I want you to know that he will either be your judge or he will be your savior. If you recognize his working in your life, then I encourage you to respond by receiving him as your savior. Because if, like Nebuchadnezzar, you will turn from self and sin to embrace the Lord as savior and Lord, he will forgive your sin and he will make you a dearly loved son or daughter. Do you have questions about that? You want to talk further about that? My information, my contact information is on the screen. I'll be happy to talk with you, pray with you, do whatever I can to help you find the answers that you're looking for. You reach out, we'll reach back, and God will meet you where you are. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share these things today. And a lot of different things have been said, and much more could have been said in this big chapter. But hopefully what you wanted said, God said, and God heard and hopefully your spirit was given an opportunity to speak to our hearts individually. Lord, whether it is someone who needs to come to faith or whether it is someone who needs to repent and change and move in a new path or grow in some specific way, may your spirit find a willing heart and may you be glorified in their actions and may their lives not only improve because they're now aligned with you, but the many people they can influence. May they be influenced for your glory as well, I pray in Jesus' name. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.